Well, uh, welcome, and it's uh, really good to, to see you. Um, if, uh, yeah, why don't, we, <clears throat> why don't we do this? Can you um, look to somebody next to you and, um, yeah, why don't we do that? Let's stand up for just a couple seconds because there's some folks trying to find a seat. Let's stand up, and can you say to maybe a couple people around you, I'm so glad you're here today. I have missed you this week. It's great to see you. All right, and let's uh, come back to our seats. If I can uh, just give a big collective, um, it is good to see you to everyone here, and a big collective, I missed you to all who are here today. Uh, I've been away for the past a couple months on sabbatical, if you're new or if you've been kind of popping in and out, uh, I've been away and today's my first Sunday back and so um, it is my joy and my, my, my delight to be back with you. Uh, there is no place like home. I, I know that um, for me, I've been traveling to different places. I've worshiped in about eight different churches while I've been gone and you've heard eight different speakers while uh, I've been away also. I'm wondering uh, how that was for you. I hope it was a great time. I know it was awesome for many of y'all. Um, anyone have a favorite? Guest speaker who came in, yeah, okay, good, good, couple of us, yeah, I really like this one, really like that one. Um, I was kind of like that, I went to different churches, like I said, um, over the period of eight weeks, I went to eight churches, and my posture, this is, this is the attitude with which I went, and I, I, I've made this explicit to, in different places, but I went one as a worshiper, I just want to worship God, um, not as a minister, not as a pastor, I just want to go and I want to worship God, I'm just going to go and, and be uh, one of the folks and, and get my worship on. That's the first thing. Second thing, I, I wanted to go in as a learner. I want to learn. I want to learn what other churches are doing. I want to learn what other pastors are doing well. I want to learn what other preachers are doing well. I just want to learn. I want to learn so that I can be better when I come back. I can be better as I uh, do the work that God has called me to do. And as I was going to these different worship services, um, sometimes I'd go with Olivia when we are out of town. And when, when I was here, uh, I'd be going to different places by myself. <clears throat> And I'd ask all about, I was like, how was it? You know, what'd you think? What'd you think of that service? And, and then we would debrief and we'd talk about it. And when I'd go to a church in town and I'd come back and I'd say, hey, this is what was awesome. This is what, ah, this was kind of uh, whatever about this church. And, and I quickly began to realize that there was a third category that I was entering into these churches with, not just as a worshiper, not just as a learner, but I was going in as a critic. And I was critiquing the things that other people in other churches were doing. If the music wasn't up to our standard, my standard, harvest standard, if the preaching wasn't something that moved me or that stimulated my mind, I'd say, ah, you know what, that church, yeah, they got to, you know, they got to improve these things a little bit here and there. And very quickly on, I began to realize the insidiousness of this attitude as it comes to worship. I felt like God was convicting me. He convicted actually through a prayer by a man named Scotty Smith and through a passage in Scripture. But I felt like what God was saying was, we've become a culture of critics, which is awesome when it comes to reality TV. If you're a judge on Top Chef or America's Got Talent or The Voice, you got to be critical. It's great for entertainment, but it's terrible when it comes to worship because we come in with this attitude that if everything is not to my liking, then I'm not going to give God the best worship that I can give to him. How was your summer? I felt God convicting me of these attitudes in my heart through a prayer and through a passage of scripture that we're going to look at that comes from John chapter 4, where Jesus says, hey, I want to tell you a little something, and I want to share that secret with you today. He tells this woman at a well in Samaria, hey, I want to tell you how you can, be the be how you can have the best worship wherever you go, wherever you are, regardless of how good or bad the praise team sounds, regardless of how uh, great the lighting in that place is, regardless of how much the pastor brings it or does not bring it, I'm going to tell you how you can have the best worship wherever you go. And that's what Jesus says to this woman at a well. We're going to read from John chapter 4, but I want to kind of I'm not going to go deep into it because it's a long passage, and to those who've grown up in church, it's a somewhat familiar passage, a true story of how Jesus meets a woman at a well in Samaria. But if, you, uh, if you're unfamiliar or if you've forgotten, I want to kind of set a context and a framework. 
uh, Israel was divided geographically into three major regions during the time of Jesus. There was Galilee in the north, there was Judea in the south. Okay, this is where the Jewish people hung out, and then in the middle were the sworn enemies of the Jewish people, the Samaritans. Not because they got into fights or arguments or wars or battles, but because the Jews saw the Samaritans as sellouts religiously and spiritually. They said they, they, they worship um, a mixture of different gods. They worship both the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they also so mix it in with Assyrian religions, and so Jewish people and Samaritan people were sworn enemies. So you got Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, central, and Judea in the south. Okay? Jewish people would never, if they're going from uh, either north to south or south to north, they would never go through Samaria. They would rather take the route around Samaria in order to get to where they wanted to go. So this is important because this conversation that Jesus has with a woman takes place in Samaria, Jesus being a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi. So there's a woman there, and this conversation happens right about now, maybe an hour later in uh, Samaria, a town called Sychar. It's about noon, and like Israel, it's similar to here in Orlando, noon is the hottest time of the day. It's not the time of day you want to be going outside, hanging out. It's the time you want to be inside doing stuff within the home. But she's there drawing water from a well, which is physical, manual, heavy-duty labor. She's doing that in the middle of the day, the hottest time of the day. Why? Because she's got a past and she's got a history and everyone in the village knows about it and they know that if they see her, she knows that if they see her, they're going to be gossiping about her. And so she wants to go when she knows nobody else is going to be at that well. So she goes at the hottest time of the day. All the other women have come and gone in the cool of the day, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock in the morning. They've gone. They've had their water cooler talk. They've talked at their locker about that girl who has five husbands and she's living with another dude who's not her husband. They've had all of that gossip and they've left. So she slides into that time at about 12 o'clock where she thinks nobody's going to be there. The problem is, to her dismay... There is somebody there. And to her deeper dismay, he's a man. Okay, this, this conversation should not happen. A man and a Samaritan woman do not have conversation in public. That doesn't happen. The second strike against this conversation, he's, he's Jewish, and Jewish people would never have conversation with a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman, let alone a Samaritan woman with a shady, scandalous, shameful past. This does not happen. The fourth strike against this conversation is that he's a rabbi. Everything is wrong about the context that is being set up here. But it says at the beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus left Judea in verse 3 and went back once more to Galilee. And it says he came to a town, uh, in, in verse 4 it says, now he had to go through Samaria. You understand, this is not a geographical reality. Everyone would go around Samaria. He did not have to go out of a physical or geographical necessity, but he's going out of a missional necessity. There is a purpose because there's one woman in Samaria who needs an encounter with Jesus that day. And John, the beloved apostle, records this conversation for us 2,000 years later, because I believe that there's some of us in here today who are not expecting, not wanting, not seeking to meet this man named Jesus. You're here for whatever reason, but you're here because Jesus is seeking you out, and he had to go through Winter Garden this morning. And you're here, and the Lord is calling your name. See, her problem is she's thirsty. She's thirsty, not physically for water, which is why she's getting water, but she's thirsty in her soul, which is why she goes at the hottest time of the day, because she's drunk from the well of five different men, and five different times the well has walked out on them, because you understand, in those days, a woman cannot initiate divorce. It's not just she had five husbands and uh, he did something bad, so she said, I'm out of here. It's five times she got married and five times the dude said, I'm leaving you. You're not giving me what I need. 
One time that happens, she goes to the well a second time. Second time that happens, she goes to the well a third time. Third time that happens, and we don't know how many men she dated or tried to marry in between all of those relationships, but one thing is clear. She's thirsty, and she's seeking to satisfy that thirst through a romantic relationship like maybe some of us in here are trying to do as well. But we've all got something in our hearts Something that uh, we're trying to turn to in order to satisfy the thirst within our hearts. And whatever it is that we're looking to, that is the thing we worship. Some of us, it's money. Some of us, it's a man or a woman. Some of us, it's proving somebody wrong. Whatever it is that we're drinking from, whatever it is that we think is going to quench our thirst, that is the thing you're worshiping. And this woman comes to this well at midday, Because she knows, well, not because she knows, but she knows that what she's drinking has not satisfied her thirst. And so she's here, and Jesus had to go through Samaria because there is one woman, this woman, who needed to have a conversation, not just a conversation, but an encounter that would lead her to true worship. And as we hear this conversation, the question I want to ask again and bring out again is how can it be that every time we worship can be an amazing time of worship, regardless of what's going on around us? Uh, John chapter 4, we're going to pick up verse 19. Jesus has prophetically exposed her history and her past that she's had five husbands. She's living with another dude who's not her husband. And so she speaks in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, this huge, verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verse 24, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. Huge, life-changing, revival would come at the end of the chapter through this woman and through this encounter with Jesus. What do we see about worship? What is the nature of worship? How can every time we gather, even today, be an amazing worship that we bring before the Lord? Two thoughts that we bring out here. First thing is this. God is more concerned with the worshiper than the worship service. God is more concerned about the worshiper than the worship service. Well, let me, let me flesh that out in just a second. But I, I want to kind of bring this, uh, kind of hone in on this by just explaining. I, I read this article this week uh, from Business Insider. I don't know if you read Business Insider. Um, but this article, there, there was uh, 17 things that millennials used to love that kids these days no longer love. Basically saying, the millennial generation, basically 20-somethings, 30-somethings, that's the millennial generation. The generation after that is called Generation Z, Gen Z. Um, That's basically um, from middle school, high school, up to some of our our college students and some of our young adults, up to about 25 years of age. That's Generation Z, and and, and there's blurred lines and all that stuff. I understand that. But it's basically, the article was, here's 17 things that Generation Z no longer likes that the millennials loved. And the upshot of it, in a fashion sense, they said things about, like, uh, millennials loved Red Bull, but Generation Z doesn't drink that stuff. They like kombucha and coconut water and cold brew coffee. In, in a fashion sense, they're saying, these are the things that the millennial generation used to, they love, they used to love going to Abercrombie, love going to Hollister, love Sperry's, Steve Madden was all the rage, right? Gap, 
uh, stores like that. They're saying, no, 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 the millennial generation, they don't think that stuff is cool anymore. I'm sorry, Generation Z doesn't think that stuff is cool anymore. What they like, they're not into the preppy look. For the first time in 17 years, Polo, Ralph Lauren, was not listed amongst the favorite brands for this age group. They interviewed hundreds and hundreds of Gen Z people, and they said, no, 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 Polo is out now. That's not cool anymore. Vineyard Vines is no longer cool for the millennial gener- for the for Generation Z. It's crazy. They said preppy is out and streetwear is in. Preppy is out. Athletic leisure, athleisure they call it, athleisure is in. Therefore, they would much rather wear Nike and Adidas than they would Abercrombie or any of these other brands that the millennials used to love. Is that true? I don't know if that's true. I'm like way behind because I'm still wearing like... I don't know what this is, <laughs> Ross or uh, Burlington Coat Factory. I love it. I don't care. It's cheap. I look at the actual retail price, and I look at actual price here at Ross, and I'm like, dude, that's a steal. I wear it. I don't care. But the, the times are changing quickly, and the re- I, I, I say that because two things came out of that. One, yeah, how quickly culture changes and fashion and taste change. But the other thing I realize is we have to know what people are seeking in order to give them the things that they actually want. Here's your birthday application if you're a parent of a teen or a teacher of a teen. Don't buy them the Abercrombie gift card. They don't want that. You might think that you might want that, but they want the Adidas or the Nike gift card. That's your application. A worship application, here's your worship application. You've got to know what God does and does not want. We think he wants great worship services. He says, I'm not seeking that. I'm seeking worshipers. Great worshipers are more important to God than great worship services. What in the world does that mean? It means it's about you and what you bring to God, not about this thing that's happening and the music, the moment, the lights, and all of these things, the dramatic crescendos and, and the preacher bringing in. He's like, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'm looking at your heart. That's what I want. How can you have a great worship service every time you come in? It's not about them. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's about you. It's about your heart. I think that's what you don't understand. You think it's about, he's got to make it work for you. They've got to make the songs work for you. They've got to not mess up. There better be no typos. They better push that PowerPoint button on cue so that I cannot miss it. We think that's what it's about. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's not about that. I was never interested in saying, oh, you know what? Great worship service. He's not saying, he's saying, what I'm seeing. Let me prove it to you. Verse 23. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Don't miss what he's saying. Jesus does not say, Jesus does not say, time is coming and has now come when amazing worship will bless the heart of the Father, for that's the kind of worship God seeks. He's not saying that. See, it's not about what everybody else does. It's about your heart. It's about the heart of worship. See, here's her problem. Samaritan woman, here she comes. I know that I'm thirsty. I know that I've got a problem with worship. Here's her deal. She says, so so tell me, Jesus. Okay, tell me, sir. Tell me where I can go to find that awesome worship. Is it in Mount Gerizim? That's where we are in Samaria because the Samaritans don't associate with the Jews. Jews don't let Samaritans come. So here's our mountain, Mount Gerizim. I've come to Mount Gerizim to worship. You Jews say it's in the temple, the temple mount in Jerusalem. That's where the Jews say awesome worship happens. You tell me, where does awesome worship happen? Because I've looked in Samaria and I haven't found it. I tried to go to Jerusalem, but they won't let me go. You tell me. Sir, where can I go for true worship? And Jesus says, That's the problem. It's not about where, it's about your heart. You think it's about being in the right place geographically. I'm saying it's about being in the right place spiritually. You think it's about all of the externals. I'm saying it's about the internal. You're saying it's about the art. I'm saying it's about the heart of worship. That's what Jesus is saying. She says, show them. okay, I, I realize that. I'm off in my worship. And Jesus says, it's not about a place, it's about a person. You're worshiping the wrong thing in the wrong way. And so Jesus says, you've got to come and you've got to worship God because that's who you were made to worship. Not these men, not money, not the things that so many people are looking for in order to find their soul's satisfaction. 
you will never find yourself satisfied if you're worshiping something or someone other than God. So Jesus says, this is what it's about right here. It's about the heart. In other words, he's saying, listen, over this summer, even if you didn't think the preacher was great, you can always worship God. Here's what he's saying. When you come and your pastor's back, you never really liked him to begin with, but even if he's preaching sermons that you don't think are resonating with you, you can always worship God because it's not about this up here. It's about your heart. If you need someone else to make worship great for you, then you haven't understood the heart of worship. You haven't understood the heart of worship. It's not about these external things. It's about your heart. You could be anywhere. You could be plopped up from here, placed anywhere, and you could, you could worship in a prison cell. You could worship in an underground church. You could worship in a place where the worship leaders are tone deaf and the preacher doesn't barely speak your language. You could still worship there because worship is about the heart. And the way Jesus says it is here's what it's about. It's about spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Worship in spirit, does that mean God's Holy Spirit or does that mean something else? Spirit with a big S or spirit with a little S? I think there's a little bit of insight in John 3, 6. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. When you ask that question, is spirit and in truth spirit talking about God's spirit or my spirit? It's not either or, it's both and. The spirit of God living in you must be the one who facilitates and draws that worship out. In other words, unless you're born again through the Spirit of God living in you, you cannot give the kind of worship that God wants. You have to be born again by the Spirit of God. That means basically you're putting your trust in Jesus. When you do that, Spirit gives birth to Spirit so that you can worship in Spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? Here's what... You've heard this before. Hey, guys, I really missed y'all. I missed you guys for the past two weeks. I missed everything that happened, but I was with you in spirit. What does that mean? It means physically I wasn't with you, but spiritually I was there. I was there in my heart, even though I wasn't there in my body. A lot of you might be here physically, but you're not here in your heart. Other people who are not here today told me, hey, DL, I'm not going to be there. I'm out of town right now, but I'm with you in spirit, worshiping with you all. What does that mean? It doesn't matter where your body, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. What matters is what's happening within you. That's why you've seen some people, haven't you? Some people who, you get together, you go to Chipotle, you go to Five Guys, you go to Firehouse, you go to wherever it is after Sunday worship, and you're talking with your friends because you didn't have the best worship experience because you weren't jiving with the person who was preaching. And you have your mental report card of what makes awesome worship, and none of those boxes were ticked off. And so because you feel that way, you feel a little bit bad, so you start complaining to other people, hoping that your complaints will be validated by somebody else so that you can have a good reason to say my worship wasn't that great today. Has anyone been like that before? I've been like that before. So you're there, and you're talking, and you're like, you're positive that everybody thought, wow, man, today's worship was rough. But you talk to someone, and they're like, oh, my gosh, it was so good. You're like, Really? Oh, my gosh, it was amazing. And even though no one else felt that way, there's someone who felt that way. Or on the opposite hand, everyone thought worship was so great, but one person thought, oh, I didn't think it was that good. Why? What's the difference? It's not great worship services that God is looking for. He's looking for the worshiper. That's what he's more concerned about. It's your heart. That means wherever you are, regardless of, that means you could be in a country, some of you have been there. Some of you have been there. You've been to like, oh, this, some of you will say this in missions. This worship service we went to, they didn't have AC. The paint was peeling off the walls. The carpet was like burnt out because a fire had come. It smelled like, like horse manure because there was a farm next door. The guitar only had two strings and it was out of tune, but it was the best worship service I've ever experienced. Why? Because you understand that worship is about the heart not about the art. That's what Jesus is saying. This summer, I think the best worship time I had was not in a church building. It was in my car, not with a band, but with a friend who was broken and hurting and struggling, and we just sat inside my car and just worshiped God. We just sang. 
he would say, do you, know, do you know this song? And we'd sing it. And I would say, let's sing this song. He would say, do you know this song? And I would sing it. We'd just go back and forth. It was like carpool karaoke, but there was no, we weren't going anywhere. and We weren't karaokeing to anything. We just sing, just worshiping. And in that place, it was like the presence of God was so there because our hearts were so wanting to meet with God. It had nothing to do with where we were. Over the summer, Olivia made a subtle suggestion to me. There are chores that I like doing around the house. I like to, um, not much. <laughs> I like to do laundry. I like to wash laundry. Sometimes on Mondays on my day off, I'll do like 10 loads of laundry. When you've got five kids who sweat, or five people, three kids, and they sweat a lot, doing lots and lots of laundry. So some days like 10 loads of laundry. I'm like going at it. I've got this, like, I've got this system going. I like doing laundry. I don't like vacuuming very much, and I don't like washing dishes very much. But uh, Olivia said, hey, you know what? I think you'll be kind of cool. It'd be like really good for Elijah, our, our, our seven-year-old. It'd be really good for Elijah to sometimes see dad do the dishes, don't you think? I was like, yeah, you know what, that would be really good. That's a good teaching moment. And so she tricked me. <laughs> so I, I was washing the dishes. But what made it palatable to me was uh, there was a book that I've read, and I've talked about it here called The Practice of the Presence of God, where a monk named Brother Lawrence lived in a monastery, and each of the monks had a job, and his job was to wash the dishes. And this was, this was his, he read in the Psalms, it says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will also rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So what he was saying was, every day we are living, you right now are living in the shadow of the Almighty. Like God's shadow comes over you. That's how near you are. You are in Bethel, the house of God. Wherever you are, God is with you. And because he knew that, he said, if I'm going to wash dishes, I'm going to pray and have un." broken communication with God. And he wrote this book. It's like 120 pages. The letters are huge. You should read it if you have time because there's not much to say. Just talk with God all the time. Oh, I, I messed up and I forgot. And it's a series of letters that he writes to people. They're like, oh, Brother Lawrence, I can't do it. I messed up. He said, when you mess up, just laugh and repent and come back to God and talk to me. And that's basically the book for 120 pages saying the same thing. So he would talk to God constantly, worship God. And there'd be times he's washing the dishes and he would just start to cry because he's aware of the presence of God. I never cried <laughs> while I did the dishes. But we too can know that wherever we are, we are in the presence of God. Here's what he said. Here's what he said. What that did, if I, he said, I knew that if God could, huge, if God could meet me while I'm washing the dishes, then certainly God will meet me when I gather with my body in order to worship God together. A man named Richard Foster wrote a book called The Celebration of Discipline where he says, reading Brother Lawrence, he said, I wanted to do that. I wanted to have this unbroken constant conversation with God. He said he did it for a year, and he said, I would go hours forgetting, or I would go days, and I would forget God, and so I would just come back, and I would start, say, God, I'm sorry, I want to talk to you again. I want to talk to you again. I want to talk to you again. He said that year was really uh, life-changing for him. He said what changed the most in that year was the expectation that he had in coming to corporate worship with the rest of the church. He said he was so expectant that God was going to show up that his worship was transformed for that year. He said, how different would it be if one or two or three people gathered with that kind of hunger and that kind of longing and that kind of expectation and they believed and they knew that God was going to show up in that place. God's not thinking about, concerned about, oh, how is, is everything sound right? He's looking at the heart of the worshiper. He says, worshiping in spirit. And then he says, worshiping in truth. Okay? Worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. And spirit means you're authentic, you're genuine, wherever you are. In truth, it means whenever John talks about truth, it's talking about in accordance with the truth, which is the word of God. That means you worship God according to the truth of who he says he is and what he says he has done. So in light of these things, we worship God. That means we don't separate worship, the emotion, from the truth of it, okay? A lot of times we think good worship is if I felt good 
a lot of times songs that we think are good are not really good for our soul because they're not grounded in the truth. There's some songs that we sing that may, or not, not necessarily we sing here, but there's some songs that are out there that may not be grounded in theological truth. He says, I want you to worship, not according to who you think God is, like God is going to give me everything I want, and that makes me feel good, therefore I've worshiped God. No, that's not right. You worship God according to the truth of who he's revealed him to be, himself to be and according to the truth of what he says he will do in our lives and the truth of what he says he's done. Right? This is what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. That means sometimes what we have considered to be our best worship services have not actually been worshiping God. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Have you ever been in a place where it's, worship is happening and it's an awesome worship service and people are jumping up and down and they're excited and they're, yeah, 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 and you go back to your seat and you're feeling really excited, but someone asks you, what were you excited about? And you're like, I'm not sure why. I think I like the music. I like the moment. I like the movement. I like the things that were happening there. Then that's not worship in truth. Similarly, times where you're just crying, crying, crying. Maybe it's at a retreat, maybe at a worship, you're just crying, but you're not all together. You look at someone else is crying next to you, someone else is crying next to you, therefore, oh, I want to cry also. And so we start crying, we start thinking about the saddest thing that happened, and we start crying, and you feel this catharsis in your heart. Oh, I've worshiped God. That's not worship in truth. Sometimes we can get really excited, but not know why we're excited. Jonathan Edwards said this in Religious Affections. He said if, uh, affections, emotions, and worship are excellent only to the degree that they're connected with the truth of what's driving the emotion. He wrote during the Great Awakenings when people were like all excited and running around giving each other high fives, barking like dogs, and all these things were happening. But he's like, that's not true revival unless it's grounded in the truth of God's Word. So if you don't know what you're singing and you find out what you're singing. There was when I was in middle school, we used to sing this song um, that says, um, I will have no other gods before me, but here on, here on bended knee, I will worship and adore thee. Does anyone know that song? Okay, some of us. Um, who else can I turn to? You're the only one. You're the only one. We sing this song, I will have no other gods before you, but here on bended knee. I was in middle school, and I didn't, we didn't have like this fancy projection stuff up there. So when we were singing, I was listening to other people sing that song, and here's what I was hearing. I will have no other gods before me, but he'll abandon me. I will worship and adore you. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I will have no other gods before me but he'll abandon me. It's like, what the heck does that even mean? But everyone else was like, yeah, they're worshiping God because they understand what they're singing. I don't know what I'm singing. I was like, man, that was kind of weird, but I guess God will abandon me. No, <laughs> here on bended knee, that's what it means. We have to know what we're singing. We have to understand. There are some songs that we don't sing that everyone else in their churches are singing because I don't know what the songs mean. I don't think it would be worshipful to us to sing those songs if we don't know what it means. One of my favorite songwriters, David Crowder, he's so poetic, but he writes these weird songs like, what was said unto the rose to make it unfold was said here to my heart. I was like, I don't think I would understand what that means if I was in middle school, so let's just either change the words or, or not do that one. By worshiping in spirit and in truth, that's what Jesus is looking for, that we understand what we're singing so that we don't just tune out, we don't just mentally check out, we don't just feel something that we're not really believing in our hearts because we don't know what it is that we're singing. Jesus, he, here's what he's saying then. He's saying what God has been saying from the very beginning of the Bible. Do you remember Cain and Abel gave their offerings to God? Abel gave the fattest portions, the first fruit, and Cain gave some of his stuff. It was in, in Isaiah when the prophets were calling out the, the Jewish people because they were given busted lambs in worship. It was the same thing in Malachi when blind sheep were being offered to God. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, I just want the hearts of my people back. That's all I want. I don't need drums. I don't need all these people up there. I just want your hearts. That's what he's saying. That's what any lover is saying. I just want your heart. Can I ask you this morning, how's your heart when it comes to worshiping the Lord? 
because God is a whole lot more concerned with the heart of your worship than he is with the greatness of all this that's happening here. First thing. Second thing, second thing, the greatness of your worship, okay? The greatness of your worship is determined by the greatness of your God. Okay, if your worship week in, week out ain't that great, can I tell you something? Here's what it's telling you. It's telling you that the God that you come to worship isn't that great either. Not God himself, but your vision of God, your picture of God, your image of God, your view of God, your vision of God has become small. If you have a little God, you will have a little worship. If you have a big God, then you'll offer up a big worship to him. This is the Samaritan woman. You realize that she walks into this place not even a worshiper, not of God at least. She's worshiping men. She's worshiping relationships. She's worshiping romantic love. But she leaves at the end of chapter 4, and she cannot stay silent telling everyone about the God whom she's met and encountered. That's worship. You come into worship service and you give your all unto God and then you walk out of him. You can't be silent. I've got to tell about this God that I've met here. That's worship. Okay, that's what it means to declare one's worth in the service as well as outside of the service. She walks in wanting to meet with nobody. She leaves not being able to tell only able to, she can't stay silent. She comes just wanting to have a quiet afternoon, well wa- uh, watering time, and she goes, I've got to tell everybody about this God that I've met, about this Jesus that I've met. Come and see. What happened? See, people say, oh, you know what? Here's what we need. Here's what our world needs when it comes to gun violence in the world, when it comes to racism in the world, we, we just, we, we need education. We need education. That's what people say. Education is important. But look here, she wasn't changed because of an education, not education alone at least. She wasn't changed by a lecture. She was encountered from an, she was changed by an encounter with Jesus. She knew about him. She said, hey, uh, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. So apparently she knew about Jesus. A couple weeks ago, our brother Dan Fon shared his testimony that growing up, he knew about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus personally. The Samaritan woman was like that, and maybe some of us in here are like that also. You know about Jesus. You've been coming to church. You know about him. You know the things that you ought to know, but you don't know him personally. How do you know the size of your worship will reveal the size of your God? It's not enough to just know about God. You've got to know him and have an an encounter with him because you cannot sing of things you have not seen. Our oldest kids, nine-year-old Manny and seven-year-old Elijah, have been listening to this song on Spotify. It's called Harry Potter in 99 Seconds. They've been on this Harry Potter kick, and they've been reading the books and watching the movies. And so um, I don't know how many Harry Potter books there are now, but um, I don't read them. I haven't seen the movies. But um, our daughter is reading them, and Elijah has, has started to watch the movies. And so this, in 99 seconds, there's a song that summarizes all of the Harry Potter books. And so they're going off, and they're singing this song. And so um, they taught me a little bit of it. It goes something like this. Um, there once was a boy named Harry destined to be a star. His parents were killed by Voldemort. He got a lightning scar, something to that effect, right? Uh, I have listened to that song a couple times because the kids like to play it over and over and over again. And even though I'm smarter than my children, I haven't got so far as beyond the second sentence. Whereas they can sing it over and over and over again. Why? Simple, it's what I just said. Because I cannot sing of things I have not seen. I think sometimes maybe we come into worship trying to sing the songs of things we haven't seen. 
when we think of, a, of an unquenchable love, when we think about an unstoppable God, when we think about, sing about a God who can do everything, or we think about a God who's worthy of all of my worship, we're singing that, but we haven't seen him to be that in our lives because we know about him, but we haven't known him. We haven't encountered him. We haven't seen him in his beauty and his glory because we're content to just kind of stand on the sidelines and just get educated without having an encounter with him. This woman knew that in, uh, being just simply knowing about him is not enough to change because I'll continually be thirsty, looking to other wells to satisfy me, looking to other things to worship. But when she had an encounter with Jesus, everything changed. She knew him, and she could never be the same again. I think so many people are coming into churches knowing about Jesus and thinking that's enough, wondering why worship isn't moving my heart the way that it moves other people's hearts. It's because we haven't seen him because we haven't fully trusted him, because we haven't given our hearts to him, because we still think that we can be the Lord of our own lives. And it's affecting the way that we worship. And you look at, then you look at people who get it, and you're like, what is wrong with them? Why are they they like that? You ever see people like that? This is what the African-American preachers used to say. They said, don't look at them. You can't question their breakthrough until you know what they've been through. And a lot of times we haven't been through those things, those encounters, those meeting with Jesus, so it looks weird what they're doing. Remember this, uh, back in the 90s, one of the the hottest actresses, and hot meaning like everyone liked her, not that she was like, the way we use it, oh, she's hot, but she was hot in terms of she was an it girl, uh, was a woman named Julia Roberts. She starred in this breakthrough movie called Pretty Woman. Anytime you're the title character of a movie called Pretty Woman, then you got to be somewhat pretty or else people are going to think that that's the wrong title. So here's Julia Roberts, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, she's beautiful. Uh, great actress. Um, everyone thought that she was one of the most beautiful women in the world, and we heard that she was getting married, this whirlwind romance, and she was marrying a guy named Lyle Lovett, who was a famous country singer. Some of us had never seen Lyle Lovett, but when we saw him, we're like, something doesn't seem right about it. Lyle Lovett was a country singer. He had big hair, um, and probably he had an amazing voice, but he wasn't a looker. He wasn't like a handsome man. And so, I mean, tabloids were trashing them all over. People were calling them beauty and the beast is what they were saying. It was weird and people were like, oh my goodness, are we looking at the same thing right now, right? You guys know if you were alive during that time, especially if you had a crush on Julia Roberts, you're like, man, I I think I could have. But that's what people were saying. It was crazy. And though no one else understood it, beauty is in the eye of the beholder doesn't matter what, I mean, because I'm seeing what I found to be beautiful. Just as it is with beauty, worship is the same thing. People might think you're crazy. Oh my gosh, why are you doing that? Why are you crying? This is a happy song. (laughs) Why are you lifting your hands? You're not in school. (laughs) What's wrong with you? People may not understand, but they don't need to, because worship is in the heart of the beholder. You see and then you cannot remain the same. I remember several years back, we were worshiping before we built this, this building. We were worshiping in the other side, and some of you remember it. We're a young Asian congregation, and there was this kind of older lady. She was probably in her 50s or 60s, but definitely in a different socioeconomic class, meaning probably lower than the majority of us. Um, She didn't have fashionable clothes. She had athleisure before athleisure became popular, and it wasn't clean clothes. And she was just kind of like standing around in the back, and and she just completely looked out of place. Maybe she had stumbled in looking for somewhere else, or she was looking for, I don't know what it was she was looking for. But I remember when we were worshiping during offering time, she walked up slowly down the middle of the aisle, and people were like, oh, my goodness, what is she doing? What is she going to do? Is she going to, like, tackle the praise leader? What is, what's happening here? And then she just stopped right in the middle, of, in front of the altar, and she got on her knees, and she just started to worship. And I know that there were some of us in there who were probably wondering, what is she doing? But for her, it didn't matter because she saw the object of her worship, and she said, he's... I, I'm not worshiping for the people around me. 
The greatness of my worship is not determined by the greatness of the band or the greatness of the people around me or the greatness of the voices rising up right now. The greatness of my worship is determined by the greatness of my God, and I'm going to give him what, what is appropriate to declare his worth right now in this moment. And she went, and she just gave it all to the Lord. When our worship is mundane and dull and boring. It's because our vision of God has become dull and mundane and boring. When God and our worship has become tame, it's because God has become tamed in our lives. We've made God a little bit bigger than us, maybe, maybe the same size as us, a little bit taller than us, and we worship him when everything is right, but he's not the transcendent, ultimate, amazing reality that others throughout history have seen him to be. Maybe you once saw him as such, but now through time, through busyness, through the worship of other things, his vision, a vision of God has become smaller in your eyes because of things that you love, the people that you love, the things that you love to do, because these other things have become bigger in your mind than God. Can I ask you, how is your heart today? How has your worship been this summer? Where are you, church, as you come to worship the Lord God? Because the size of your worship will be determined by the size of your God. And I think what our world needs these days is more people who have a vision-busting understanding of the glory of our God. That's what our world needs Today, more than ever, it's what America needs, it's what the nations need, it's what our schools need, it's what your workplaces need, it's what my kids need, it's what our families need, it's what everybody needs. We need to see that there is a God because we're worshiping the wrong thing and we're walking around thirsty, plastering on um, satisfied smiles when deep in our hearts we're longing for something that we were created for and we're grasping for it. Jesus says, check it, I who speak to you am he. Because when she came, all she knew was the truth of her sinful, thirsty, broken, scandalous condition. But Jesus began to peel back the layers, and he began to expose, began to show the truth of who he is, of what he came to do, of who she was made for, of what she was made to do, of a God who's seeking her. He had to go through Samaria because there was a woman there. And this morning, we're sitting at a well where your soul satisfaction could be met in Christ. You're here because he's here and because he's seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. How far would he go in order to show you that he is the one you need? He would take the thirst right out of her mouth. He begins this passage, will you give me a drink because I'm thirsty? And through a series of conversations, he turns his physical thirst into her spiritual thirst, exposes that, and then he would carry that all the way to the cross. Where with his final breath, he speaks the very words of her soul. I'm thirsty. The very words that you and I and every human being has ever, who's ever lived, have uttered through our hearts. Every time we go to drink from romantic love, every time we pick up the cup of alcohol to drink, every time we pick up the, uh, the cup of, of illegal drugs, every time we pick up the cup of our reputation and we drink from it, we're saying, Jesus, I'm thirsty. Won't you come and fill me? Earthly things have left me dry. Only you can satisfy And taking all of our false worship to the cross, he was crucified in order that we might know the satisfaction that he knew from the beginning of time until the cross, and he lost it in order that you and I might have it for ourselves. Some of us are drinking from things that we think can still satisfy us. And we're fighting to hold on to those things. This great pastor and author, Tim Keller, says, the thing you're most defensive about right now is the thing that's most disastrous and dangerous to your soul. Would you hear him? What is it that we need? How can I have awesome worship? How can I do that? It's in encountering God. Who is this God? Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And we'd worship in spirit and worship in truth. Let's pray together.
Let's take a moment to pray to the Lord God. Some of us in here, you've heard this message. Maybe you've heard this message before, and God is calling you to come back. Maybe your vision of God has been blinded by the sin and the idols in your life, by earthly things and unsatisfying options have blinded your vision of who God is, and he's calling you to come back to him. That word is called repentance. It means to ask for God God to forgive and to turn away and turn to Jesus. Others of you, you have yet to put your trust in this Jesus. He's here today. He wants to meet with you today. He wants to find you in your thirst. He says, I'm here, and I want to satisfy you. Won't you come to him? And say, Jesus, I confess my sin. I need you. Would you come and be my master, be my savior, that through an encounter with you, my life can be changed. Let's pray together for a couple minutes like that. Um, Again, worship in spirit and in truth right now in this moment means we're praying, we're seeking the Lord. We're not just going through emotions. We're not just checking out, but we're engaged and we're locked in. That's worship. We pray to the Lord. So whether you pray quietly or whether you pray out loud, we're honest before the Lord God, saying, Lord, I need you. I need more of you. Be magnified. Be bigger in my eyes. So let's worship in spirit and in truth through this time of prayer for just a minute or two right now. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that while we've been running after other small gods, that you have not given up on us, that your son Jesus said to that woman at the well, the Father is seeking, not just that you're passively waiting, but you're pursuing and you're looking, and you're moving towards, and you're tugging at hearts, calling us by name, helping us to see the bankruptcy and the insufficiency of the things to which we look for satisfaction in our soul. Thank you that as you call us away from these things so that we might worship you here and now, everything in our lives has led us to this point in time where you are here and we sit in the presence and the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, may we open our hearts and surrender to you in order that we might receive from you all that you have for us. Lord, change our hearts so that we can live each day aware of your presence to live for you and for your purposes. As we prepare to come to this table of grace, And as we are reminded of your faithful love for us, we pray that you would move within us and stir us to a greater love and appreciation for all that you are and all that you've done for us. We thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.